Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, March 22nd edition of the Carolina Weather Group. Uh, uh, third week, fourth week into uh, the month as we uh, continue the uh, National Weather Podcast Month. Uh, for all those who are joining us, so we appreciate you following. And for our loyal followers, we appreciate you as well. Uh, tonight we have Doug Marcial. We're going to talk about uh, sea coast, uh, coastal uh, water rise and uh, the effects of that. And a very important topic tonight. So uh, very happy to have Doug on with us. Uh, Doug has a whole presentation planned out for us. So looking forward to that. Before we get that, let's uh, do a few housekeeping rules. If you have any uh, questions during this event, feel free to send them to us via Twitter or our Facebook page. Uh, uh, we, we, we really uh, hope it's Twitter because our Facebook page is having some issues right now. So uh, send them to us on Twitter, at Group. Uh, that way we are sure to see them. But if you want to send them on Facebook, uh, hopefully they'll come through and we'll, we'll monitor that as well throughout the show. Again, uh, if you're listening on the podcast, we'll have uh, Doug share his information towards the uh, end of the show. And if you have any questions for him, uh, you can direct those as well. So uh, that's about it. We have a lot of exciting news going on, so we'll keep uh, this part short and sweet. I did want to show you what's going on in Western North Carolina. It seems like uh, we cannot get rid of the uh, wildfire threats, and uh, that's uh, plagued again. This is from my Twitter page earlier today. Can you guys see the picture? Okay, so uh, I'm going to show you a few pictures. This was uh, around uh, maybe 2 o'clock today. Uh, this is uh, the White Creek uh, fire up in the Linville Gorge. Uh, I know if you live in <clears throat> excuse me, western North Carolina, you've probably heard about it. If not, another forest fire um, in the mountains. And then I want to show you, uh, this is about uh, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock tonight. Uh, a lot of uh, intensification uh, due to uh, the the fire spread him, but also some uh, back building with the, uh, the fire uh, fighters up there as well. So as you can see, smoke filled air throughout the uh, foothills also showing up on radar. So uh, the fire pretty intense, uh, as you can see. And this is just another view from uh, McDowell County, uh, kind of on the backside of the fire. So uh, that's what we're dealing with here in Western North Carolina uh, with the storm system that moved through uh, last evening. We here in the foothills didn't get a lot of rain. Uh, not as much as uh, they did in the upstate and uh, the Piedmont areas, uh, only five one-hundredths of an inch, so uh, no rain to really help the uh, fire efforts at all. So we need some rain, and unfortunately it doesn't look like a lot is coming our way. So uh, that's what's going on here in the western Carolinas. Uh, dry, we had some wildfires. Uh, all the storms and stuff was down in the uh, Charlotte area, so I'm going to switch it over to James who can uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the storms that rolled through there last night, maybe even what happened in, in parts of the upstate. James is muted. <laughs> we cannot hear James. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's go up to uh, David Reese in Charlottesville. David, how's the weather up there in uh, Virginia? You uh, kind of missed out on the storms last night, didn't you? Uh, we did. We did. It's a little chilly right now. Uh, our high temperature today was 58 degrees, which we hit at about 101 this morning. We've been in a free fall ever since, and we officially rebounded back to about 51, 52 degrees in the middle of the afternoon when many of us were able to experience it. And now we're already back down. Oh, what's the current temperature out there? We're already down to 45 degrees. The low so far today was 44 at 7 a.m. So going to beat that here in a few minutes, a few hours for sure. Next couple days, sunny tomorrow, cold, highs near 50. Over the weekend, though, we're looking at a nice ridge of high pressure building in and Pumping warmth our way, mid-70s in the forecast on Saturday. Rain possible on Sunday and Tuesday. But other than that, it's been somewhat uneventful. Saturday was a little interesting with the upper low moving on through. We had a few reports of small hail around central Virginia from some of the stronger thunderstorms. I actually was able to get out and enjoy some of the thunderstorms as I wasn't working. And I was like, ah, spring is here. Now, if we can just get rid of this cold weather with a low tonight, about 24, 25 degrees. So still cold, but warmth is on the way. Mm, Scotty is now muted. No, I'm good. I'm ah, good. good. <laughs> uh, so, Shay, if you don't mind, it says I'm presenting to everyone. I don't think everyone wants to see my ugly mug, Oh, so. You're right. I got you covered. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, let's go down to Charlotte, North Carolina now, where I think James may have fixed uh, the uh, technical issues. Hello, Mom. Can you hear me now? All You're right. Good. Excellent. 
Uh, it's the night for technical gaffes, because uh, tonight was the night we wanted to debut Facebook Live to you, and Facebook's uh, not working, but uh, I don't think that's on us. If you can post to a Facebook page, do, do let us know. But yeah, so we got quite uh, some storms yesterday. Nice second day to spring to kick things off. It got quite warm, mid and upper 80s. Uh, our friend Kit, who I don't think is on the show tonight, so uh, I will show off the pictures that he showed off on local TV here yesterday. Take a look at some of that hail, uh, mainly the uh, mid-center of Charlotte and the north side of Charlotte got uh, hail up to about two inches yesterday, but it wasn't just the Carolinas. As a matter of fact, Charlotte was kind of really just the uh, eastern edge of where these storms rolled through. South Carolina got a pretty good light show, as did uh, parts of Athens, Georgia, the Atlanta area. And I had a video queued up and YouTube has gone rogue on me, so let me roll it on back. It is uh, the sky cam from the University of Georgia when we had Marshall Shepard on a, a few weeks or months back. He talked about it. And that's Wake Forest. So I don't know what's going on here, but it was a great look from two different vantage points at the university there. Here it is. Uh, as it plays through the yesterday, you can see on the bottom of the screen, you can watch the temperature climb uh, up to almost 90 degrees. I think it's going to top out at about 87 degrees on the left side. State Botanical Gardens, just south of Athens, right side, mid-campus, the uh, Climatology Research Lab. And here we go. As we roll into the afternoon hours, you can see the increasing clouds. And then just as those temperatures peak and then drop off as the skies open up, lots of rain, lots of lightning and thunder came rolling through the uh, greater Atlanta area yesterday. And I just thought that was a really cool vantage point to share. That was pretty neat. I like that. Pretty neat. Yeah, it's And it really wants to go to FSU. David, what did you do to my computer? <laughs> David's uh, tapped into us. So let's go up to uh, Peter, who's up in a Jersey area. Peter, uh, you know, the talk was before the show is the Cinnabon that you're eating. So tell us how it was. <laughs> free, man. This free plug to Cinnabon, everybody. Here you go. Hey, yeah. they can sponsor us if they want to. Hey, I would love them to. Give us free Cinnabon. Look at that pecan. Oh, man, I'm in my glory tonight. But anyway, uh, enough about that. It's been uh, pretty chilly around here, below average uh, most of this week. Uh, we've been in the 40s and 50s. And uh, tonight we're actually going to be down into the teens. So when you get up tomorrow, it's not going to be very pretty heading out to work. But uh, that's the story of my life up here. And uh, we're going to heat up a bit on Saturday to maybe 70. And then back down to the 40s again for Sunday and uh, 50s next week. So it's kind of up and down, up and down uh, through the next week or so. And uh, no snow. So that makes it even better. Very happy. Can't the weather just make its mind up? I'm ready for it to stay warm. I'm, I'm telling you. Just ready for the warm I hear weather. you. <laughs> well, let's go over to uh, Mr. Ricky Matthews, who was in East Tennessee. Ricky had a uh, very exciting week representing uh, the Carolina Weather Group, and ha <clears throat> excuse me, has some exciting news about the Carolina Weather Group. So, let's let Ricky uh, give us all the details of what's been going on over the past couple of days. Yeah, we had the uh, great opportunity to, as part of National Weather Podcast Month, Scotty, to join Weather Brains last Monday. We had uh, a great panel of guests. We had uh, Gary from the Weather Service, or retired Weather Service now, up in uh, Mount Holly, New Jersey. We had Gina Esco from the uh, DC area, one of the social scientists. And of course, Chuck Doswell, always a great person to have on Weather Brains, and of course, the regular cast there. So it was a, a good conversation about the snowstorm that happened up in the Northeast in some spots and didn't happen so much in other spots, and, and kind of the uncertainty behind that. And, how it was communicated and how we can maybe improve that. Uh, some good points brought up, um, some points that may be a little hard to implement, but uh, you know, discussion's never a bad thing. So really enjoyed our time as part of that. And thanks to uh, Bill Murray for inviting us on that. So you mentioned we have some exciting news. We do want to share that the Carolina Weather Group accepted Rick Smith's request for all the podcasts associated with National Weather Podcast Month to become Weather Ready Nation ambassadors. And we put in our paperwork a few days ago and uh, got our email yesterday that we were accepted as a Weather Ready Nation ambassador. So we're excited to be part of that program that helps promote weather safety across the nation uh, as part of our podcast and some of our outreach efforts. Yeah, looking forward to that. Looking forward to uh, having those guys. Maybe we can have those guys on and really let everyone know what the Weather Ready um, Nation is all about. So. Let's toss to uh, Shay, who is going to uh, kind of tell us what's going on in the Charleston area and then bring in our guests tonight. So, Shay, the floor is yours, my friend. 
Fantastic. So yeah, we had uh, some thunderstorms last night here at the coastline too. Uh, I guess, can everybody see the screen that I have yep. here? Okay. Yep. So um, quarter size hail in the Charleston area, this is just inland in North Charleston, is uh, rather rare. I mean, we usually get, eh, you know, pea size to dime size hail if we get that at all. But I was sort of, you know, we talked last night about the mesolo that, that developed sliding down slope from the Appalachian Mountains. And, you know, the last several cold fronts, you know, probably a dozen that have moved through the area have been sort of thwarted by the cool shelf waters, which are about 58 degrees. Now they're up to about 60. I was sort of banking on that last night to sort of stave off the thunderstorms, but we found that the mesolo is a much stronger system that has much more convective activity associated with it that the shelf waters are not able to thwart. So we got quarter size hail just inland. I mean, I saw some of the pictures of three inch to baseball size hail upstate. I couldn't believe it. That's just not normal for the Southeast, but we did rebound after the thunderstorms last night and uh, we had a really nice, beautiful spring day, about 76 degrees at 2.56 p.m. And we are uh, gonna cool down tonight. We're gonna get into the upper 40s and we'll probably only get up to the, about the mid 50s tomorrow. We're, we're sitting with a Northeast wedge along the coastline. And so those winds are gonna kick up anywhere from about 17 to 21 knots or even higher in gusts uh, for pretty much most of the day until the afternoon when they sort of fade out. So we got a little bit of a cool down and we're gonna have a a nice gradual warm back up as high pressure moves out into the Atlantic and um, sort of brings another southerly flow back into the coastline. So it'll be kind of gradual over the several days. We'll probably have a stronger sea breeze by Sunday. So that's the weather for Charleston right now. Uh, I guess if, if everybody's finished with the regions, we'll go ahead and introduce Doug Marcy. He's with us tonight from NOAA. He's the coastal hazard specialist for NOAA. He works with Digital Coast. He works with flood inundation maps, GIS, you name it. He is an expert in his field, and he's here to talk about sea level rise with us this evening. So I'll hand it to you, Doug. We, we really like to introduce our guest and ask, uh, how, how did you get uh, to where you are now with what you do with NOAA? Oh, thanks, Shay. Um, can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay, good. Um, yeah, I started with NOAA about I guess I've been with NOAA about 15 years now. Uh, about 2002 is when I started. Before that, I uh, worked for the uh, Corps of Engineers here in Charleston as a hydraulic engineer. I worked on a lot of um, hydrologic modeling and coastal engineering projects. And then before that, I worked at the South Carolina Coastal Management Program for a couple of years, helping them out uh, as a uh, NOAA fellow, working on some GIS applications. Um, but since I've been in NOAA, I've been working a lot on uh, various types of flooding issues, starting out working actually with the Weather Service on a lot of the inland flooding, river flooding stuff after Hurricane Floyd, 1999, kind of kind of dates me a little bit. And um, and then more recently on storm surge issues, we work a lot with our Hurricane Center uh, storm surge unit down there, Jamie Rome and a lot of their products that they're putting out. And uh, we've been doing a lot of sea level rise work, a lot of mapping work, which is what I'm going to kind of talk about today. So um, so enough about me. Let's uh, I'll go ahead and get started. Um, I do have quite a few kind of visuals I'm going to share my screen here and can you see yes you are up and running okay good deal okay so yeah title of the slide of the talk is, is really talking about the one of the main impacts we're seeing especially here in the low country South Carolina but a lot of, along the East Coast is the the main impact we're seeing in climate change and the most real kind of in our lifetime uh, impact to sea level rise. So we'll talk a little bit about that. We're gonna start out kind of at the global scale, uh, talk about some of the drivers that are causing this, what causes sea level rise globally, and then drill down into what's going on locally, regionally, and then, and then locally, and then talk a little bit about projections, where we're going in the future, some of the new science that's coming out there, and then what local communities like Charleston, where, we, where I'm from, and, uh, and Chase from are, are doing about it in terms of starting to deal with a, a strategy and, and actually investing real dollars into uh, some of the mitigation uh, for that. So um, you guys are all meteorologists, you understand basic physics and um, my background's in, in geology, so I'll try to put a little bit of, uh, of historical perspective on this too as we go through, but it's pretty simple. This graph here is out of the National Climate Assessment, the third National Climate Assessment. Uh, as you know, the fourth climate assessment is going on right now. We hope that's going to be coming out in 2018, which will kind of be a, uh, an update of the science. Um, but basically, you got two things here going on. Uh, CO2 concentration increases in the atmosphere. That basically uh, acts as a blanket and causes the, 
the global temperature to increase. We've, we've gone above 4,000 parts uh, per million, I mean, sorry, 400 parts per million now with CO2 as high as it's ever been, like 600 million years. So uh, temperatures following that, and we think eventually sea level rise will as well. There's a little bit of a lag because the ocean does tend to absorb some of the heat initially, but it will catch up. Um, also stole this out of the National Climate Assessment, just looking at how we know the world is getting warmer. Um, all these indicators, we have more water vapor. If we have higher temperatures, obviously more evaporation, more water vapor. So we may have more intense precipitation events. Uh, we've, we've certainly seen that like Louisiana here in South Carolina uh, 2015 and uh, Matthew up in North Carolina, these are just amazing rain pulses and atmospheric rivers that are um, tend to be more uh, starting to be more common. Sea surface temperatures going up, all these things are going up, but at the same time, you got sea ice depleting, especially in the Arctic, and uh, glaciers, ice sheets, snow cover going down, and uh, of course, sea levels going up. But this has happened before, um, and you know, as a geologist, that you go back and look at the geologic record, you know, before man was even here, before we discussed about, well, is man causing global warming and all this? I mean, the, the, the Earth cools and warms on cycles. Uh, about 100, every 150,000 years. Uh, if you look at this, it goes back 400,000 years ago. We have these ups and downs in sea level. Um, if you study uh, geomorphology, especially you know where the fall line is on the East Coast, that's kind of the upper limit of where sea level was about 5 million years ago. And then during the last ice age, uh, the glaciers came down as far as, as uh, you know, uh, Long Island. And then the the ocean was was about 65 miles off the coast than it is today, about 20,000 years ago. So you see that it's gone up and down quite a bit. It's and then in the last ice age, it went up pretty fast. About 22,000 years ago was the last glacial maximum. You can see we had this pretty intense meltwater pulse, and sea level rose pretty rapidly on a geologic time scale. But then about 6,000 years ago, we kind of stopped. We kind of leveled off. And unfortunately, this is where civilization and, and humans started developing along the coast, of course, because of the, of the coastal resources, the fishing and everything else and the commerce. We built cities right along the coast and sea level has been pretty much static since humans have been around. And so we kind of have this mental model that sea level is always gonna be where it is now or was. And, um, and unfortunately, it's starting to change. Um, we're looking at globally through tide records throughout the world and also now using satellite altimetry since 1993, we're starting to see this upward trend happen once again. And in a, in a time when we shouldn't be seeing the cycle, uh, and we think that's because the CO2 concentration is, is, is partially being driven by human activity, because normally we wouldn't see that until a little later on. And we already talked about uh, the warming world, but what causes sea level to actually change, there's, a, there's a, a lot of factors. The main ones right now that are driving the sea level change globally is the increase in the ocean temperature causes the ocean to expand. It's, it's a simple physics kind of thing. You fill a glass full of water and you stick it in the microwave and you turn the microwave on and it boils over. So the, the water expands and, and spills out of the cup. Uh, so the, there's no other place for the water to go. So it fills up the basin and, and starts to uh, increase the water levels. And then of course we have the, in, the contribution of ice over land. Sea ice is, is not gonna cause a problem, it's already floating. It's the ice over land uh, that once that starts to, to break off and displace water, but also melt, that's gonna increase sea level. And then of course, you have these other con contributing factors. Locally, what's going on with subsidence, is, it becomes very important in places like Louisiana. Also here on the East Coast, we have some hot spots with, with some subsidence that that increased sea level locally. Um, just looking back uh, since 1993, you can see what we've seen so far with this global trend. Um, what's, what, what's adding to that is the thermal expansion component plus the added meltwater is giving us this, what, what we're seeing in the increase. Um, a little bit about what NOAA does. Uh, we, we, as you're aware of, if you're if you live on the coast and you do coastal meteorology, you probably look at our, especially for water levels, you look at our, our NOAA tide gauge data, or Seaman stations, or things like that. This is an example of a tide station. Uh, you can see, and here is we basically there's a little stilling well. Uh, this pressure sensor measures the pressure difference in the water levels. We also use microwave radio, uh, 
microwave radiation um, to uh, as another way of doing that too. Basically, looks down and, and captures the water surface. That actually gives us some pretty cool data too because we can start to see wave effects as well. The whole point of these older systems is to is to dampen out the waves and just record the water level, and then it sends it through a satellite altimetry and it gets absorbed into uh, the the the, uh, the um, the data stream that goes to the weather forecast offices and, and others. I think it's called HADS. Uh, so um, we monitor it locally, uh, but we also monitor it globally using satellites. Uh, so the satellites, uh, the polar orbiting satellites, cover the entire Earth over a period of time. They measure the sea surface, and then it gets averaged over time, and that's what's been used uh, in addition to the in situ uh, measurements. And so with that data, we can start to look what's going on globally and then nationally. And we can see this is a great site that our uh, sister office co-ops has uh, the tides and currents, uh, sea level rise trends. You can see where we have uh, areas of hot spots, uh, Louisiana coast, sea levels trending a lot higher on the east coast. But you do have places in the northern parts of the of the northern hemisphere where sea level is going down relative to the land because it's still rising. The land is rising because the lack of ice on there now. Because uh, post-glaciation, the, the crust tends to rebound as the weight is, is lifted from the ice sheets. So what's going to happen in the future? Um, again, pulling from the National Climate Assessment, we have these different kind of uh, relative concentration pathways, they call them RCPs, and these are kind of greenhouse gas scenarios. Um, everywhere from uh, business as usual, which is RCP 8.5. In other words, we're going to keep on uh, producing as much CO2 as we are now into the future. And that's the red line there, and then you have your kind of your best case scenarios that we level out, uh, uh, Paris Agreement and all that comes to fruition, you know, then we can kind of keep things around the two degree range. If, if, go, if by 2100 you're on the red path, you could be up to the eight degrees uh, increase uh, range. And that's kind of, that data there drives some of the, some of the models that we see uh, for sea level rise. For the, for the third National Climate Assessment, there was a subgroup there that kind of looked through all the literature that was out there on different sea level rise rates, uh, including the IPCC, and kind of did a um, expert solicitation of, of, of the literature and kind of came up with these scenarios that were used as input. Uh, we call these consensus scenarios, sometimes they're called the NOAA scenarios, but they came out, it was a Paris et al. So Adam Paris was a colleague of mine that was at NOAA at the time. He's already, he's left now, but was the lead on that. It had a, a multi-agency and non-profit uh, universities and, and, and NGOs. And essentially looked at four different scenarios. One is just a simple extrapolation of the current trend. One includes ocean warming, just, just ocean warming. That's the intermediate low. And a moderate ice melt scenario and then a major ice melt scenario. So that's ranged from about 0.2 meters to, to 2 meters by 2100. So if you put all this together, you can look at uh, constructing the, the curves as you've seen in the literature. You can go back before we had gauge data, we were using like ice, ice cores and core information, sediment cores. We can, and then gauge data came along around the late 1800s. Then we've kind of switched over to gauges and satellites. And now we're trying to figure out where are we going to be with all these, the best uh, information we have about the climate models. And a lot of that uncertainty has to do with what this, the uh, emission scenarios will be. So how are we tracking now? Um, if you look at this graph, these are the different scenarios and you can see the satellite altimetry data. Globally, we're kind of, we've been kind of between the intermediate high and the intermediate low, but it changes based on the region. So for the South Atlantic coast, for instance, we're trending a little Recently, we've been trending a little bit higher than that. And of course, that that inter that interannual variability and things like that, and and ENSO and and uh, PDA, uh, uh, AMO and all those uh, kind of ten-year cyclical things cause cause it to go up and down, as as you know. Uh, a brand new report just came out. Some of my NOAA colleagues, uh, a guy named Billy Sweet, is was the, the main author on this at uh, at co-ops. It's going to feed into the next climate assessment, and um, they've bumped the uh, upper range up to two and a half meters by 2100. And you can see they've done these kind of even slices at, at, at five, uh, 0.5 meters. Um, so there's there's now going to be six scenarios, and then kind of easier to look at this way, uh, where your these scenarios kind of start to split apart in even increments. But they do associate them with these RCPs 
to give you a little bit more sense of a probable outcome. If you pick a scenario, you can kind of get an idea of how likely are you to exceed that by a certain date. So this will be fed into the National Climate Assessment and, and start to be used for, for, for planning. And just uh, point this out, and you guys are, um, are weather buffs, so you know this stuff, but uh, I like to point out the, the difference between you know, a deterministic versus probabilistic versus scenario approach to, to dealing with, especially for planning. And you look at all those lines and curves, everybody wants to know, well, I just tell me which curve you want that we should plan to. Picking one curve would just be like a deterministic type uh, approach where at the end of the 2100, you just give it one number and, and you kind of, uh, if you're way above or way below, you could be really wrong. Uh, the other option is pick several different scenarios and plan for like worst case scenarios for like critical infrastructure versus lower scenarios uh, for maybe less critical. Or you can kind of look at the probabilistic range, which is that the, the dotted area in the middle there, which is, okay, more likely it's going to be potentially in this range, and, um, and you can do it based on kind of exceedance uh, probabilities. So given all that uncertainty, the ranges are pretty, uh, pretty far apart by the time you get out to 2100, and even beyond that, they get even farther apart. What's the greatest source of uncertainty there? Well, not only the greenhouse gas emissions, but we don't know what the ice sheets are going to do. Uh, we have no prior uh, real data on this. Um, we never studied the ice sheets because they've always been stable. They're hard to get to, they're cold. Um, we have just started, uh, the scientists are, I bet there's a lot more um, glaciology degrees coming out of our universities now. Um, so the, uh, they're starting to study these every season and they're starting to get more and more data on how these ice sheets are gonna um, start to flow potentially break off, cab off, that kind of thing. So there's a potential there for quite a bit of non-linearity when it comes to uh, these curves. Luckily, they're not going to be, uh, you know, uh, based on like a, um, uh, a quadratic equation, they're going to be all over the place. So, And you can see here that uh, most of the rise so far has been from the ocean warming. And then we also know that sea level is not rising the same rate everywhere. Uh, we do have these climatic patterns like uh, Pacific Decadal Oscillation uh, and ENSO that cause the water to pile up sometimes on the Western Pacific, for instance, in this example, that's kind of reversing that trend now and water, they're saying water is going to start to pile up a little bit more on the California coast. So this back and forth will, will happen. So at any given year, we could have a variability in sea level uh, regionally. And obviously land motion plays a big part of that. Uh, uh, again, we've seen three feet of sea level rise in Louisiana in the past hundred years. In the Charleston area, we can look at the trend. We've seen about 100, uh, over the last hundred years, about one, one foot. The Charleston tide gauge has been here about since 1921, so about 86 years of data. We can do a trend line and uh, have fairly high confidence that we've seen about one foot in the, in the last hundred years. And then we can look at these projections and use some some pretty cool tools out there. The Corps of Engineers has a really neat sea level rise calculator and you can put in, it just uses the quadratic equation to, you can plot anywhere along here and do a planning horizon, whatever your year you want, or whatever scenario, and it, it gives you your numbers. The, um, the city of Charleston is doing exactly that. They, they looked at some of the, the NOAA scenarios, some of the core scenarios, and they looked at, we want to plan out 50 years, go out and then draw a box and say, okay, we want to be maybe two and a half feet increase uh, for freeboard and things like that for, for critical infrastructure and then only one and a half for things like parking lots and, and open spaces and things like that that are not as critical. Uh, and this would be like a sliding scale as the science improves, they would update this over time. So that's a, that was a pretty neat way of, of trying, to, trying to pick a year and a potential scenario for planning. But what's happening uh, on a daily basis here, especially uh, with along the East Coast is that we're starting to meet these critical thresholds a lot more often. This is a great uh, graphic from our co-ops folks showing that, you know, that one foot of sea level rise we've seen here on the East Coast, uh, if you had a storm surge uh, 10, you know, back in the 50s, you got one more foot of water in the system now. So, uh, and even with high tide events, that water starting to creep into these, uh, you know, starting to, to come up into our infrastructure uh, more and more on these tidal events. These are really just simply uh, astronomically driven, a lot of these tide events, um, called perigean tides. 
people call them spring ties. Sometimes people get confused. They think spring ties only happen during the spring time. It actually means they spring, they spring up and down, um, spring higher. But our, our biggest tides of the year are uh, in the fall, around October, uh, and in the spring. So we're getting to, ready to go into some of our higher tides in the spring. When we have our, uh, in the spring we'll have our new moon, and then in the fall we'll have our full moon where we get those tide events. And, and they cause, uh, you know, when we don't have any meteorological uh, forcing going on, um, we can just have water start coming up into the streets just from the tide at this point. So weather service, uh, a lot of the coastal weather forecast offices have these thresholds they use. They, they base them on our tide gauges. And when you cross over, when it's predicted to go above these thresholds, they'll issue a, issue a coastal flood warning. This is the one that happened uh, last October. No, sorry, not last October, uh, 2015. So we were, this was our fourth highest water level ever recorded since 1921 in Charleston. It's 8.6 feet above me, lower low water. Um, it was considered a major flood. We had a lot of issues from that. And there wasn't really much going on other than um, a really high tide event. That actually wasn't it during the, 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 uh, the heavy rainfall event, although we did have a high tide that day too. So this is what it looks like. Uh, if you've ever visited Charleston, this is Wentworth and Lockwood. Uh, the water comes up through the storm drain. Um, it's not really connected to the to the open harbor. It's just coming up through the uh, stormwater infrastructure, and that is a real problem um, because just a little bit of if you're not an engineer, stormwater 101. If you look at cross section of a stormwater system, you have your uh, your uh, water enters in on the street level through the storm drains, and then there's an outfall pipe that goes to the harbor or to the water body. At low tide, there's more distance between the two water surfaces and that creates more gravity fed and so it, it causes the water to, to retreat quicker. If the high tide is, is filling that, you have a smaller difference, it's going to drain slowly. So a lot of the older cities are based on a gravity fed system and there's no uh, no other uh, forcing on it. So when, when tides are high and you get a heavy rainfall event, we ca it causes a lot more flooding problems. So that's why you're seeing cities start to have to put pump out stations and things like that, and floodgates and tide gates. So we've seen an increase in the number of events in Charleston, uh, these, these flood events where we've gone over the threshold going back to the 20s. It pretty much follows the sea level rise curve and you can see we've seen a lot more of these events. Plotted out here uh, kind of by decade, um, you're looking at, uh, 11 events, we've had a record events in 2016. We had, I think, 38 events in Charleston. And then uh, if we project that out under some of the scenarios, we're gonna start having 180 times a year. Uh, so we'll effectively be, not be able to use uh, certain, certain areas that, that flood unless we can somehow uh, fix the system. Um, again, my colleagues said, uh, Billy Sweet does some, has done some great work on this. You look at these top 10 U.S. cities, uh, Charleston's one of them. Uh, you guys live in some of these cities. 400% uh, increase we've seen uh, since the 50s. Philadelphia, Baltimore, 900% increase. So this is real. This is happening, uh, you know, in our lifetime kind of stuff. So, and um, and if you look out like these tipping points, when are we going to start to see more than 30 days a year? By when? Like under what scenario you can start to say by the, by the 2020s? You know, unless we start to, to, to put some serious money into the infrastructure improvement, we're, we're going to start to not be able to use some of these areas. It's a great app. I don't have an actual slide separately for it, but it's called MyCoast. Uh, MyCoast.org, South Carolina. You can download the app on your phone and go out. And when these when we have these high tide events, you can take pictures of them and document them, and then it, it records your your geolocation there and a the time and then it looks at the tide gauge and tells you what the tide was and, and posts it to a website and South Carolina OCRM um, maintains that it's pretty neat citizen science so um, real quick I'm, I don't want to take up too much more here but we get a lot of questions about okay well what now that we know the sea level is going up and you know, what about hurricanes storm frequency and um, sea level is like I like to say is an exacerbator of, of, of our current problems we already have. We are we already know we get hurricanes. Um, we just had a real close call with Matthew. Thank God we got it, it hit at a low tide. We would have had six more feet of water uh, here along the low country it would have been. And that was only Cat 1 uh, storm when it hit, uh, made landfall. So it's a little sobering to think what could happen. But the science is kind of fuzzy on if we're going to have more hurricanes and more intense hurricanes. It's uh, 
we're thinking lately is we may have more intense hurricanes, not necessarily more hurricanes, but because the heat, the heat content of the ocean is going to be higher than there's potentially for stronger storms. And because the, the depth of water uh, uh, will be warmer at deeper depths, uh, that will be more energy for the hurricane. And so the idea here is if you have your current floodplain 2010 and then you raise sea level, then you know the floodplain is just going to start moving inland farther and farther unless we put things like seawalls in place or start to, to do retreat, um, you know, eventually the floodplain is going gonna, is gonna to start to inundate uh, because we've kind of built up to that, to that line. And this affects a lot of people around the country, some of the most vulnerable states, obviously Florida, Louisiana, uh, but we're pretty vulnerable here along the East Coast as well. I just showed you a lot of population are vulnerable. Oops. Um, and this is impacting, you know, the economy as well. This is just an example. If you shut down the port of New Orleans, uh, this is a great graphic because it kind of shows like the port as a, of New Orleans is sort of the heart. And uh, if you shut that off, it's connected to all these capillaries and, and, and uh, blood vessels. And, and these are where the, where the goods and services are going from the ports. And if you cut that down, you know, that's going to affect people in Montana eventually. Uh, so it's, uh, it's not just a coastal issue, I guess, is what I'm getting at. So this is my favorite slide. What are we going to do? Put our heads down, and it's it's a kind of a um, overwhelming thing to think about. But um, we try to show people that we, you know, places like Charleston, Norfolk, these places are older cities. We're pretty resilient. We've dealt with a lot of stuff. In Charleston, we've had an 1886 earthquake. Uh, we didn't have any federal assistance back then. We were able to rebuild. Uh, we had Hurricane Hugo. We came back uh, stronger than ever. So, I mean, I think we're smart and we can, we can figure this stuff, stuff out. We just got to get going on the problem. And one of the first things you want to do, I think we've done that, is identify the problem, figure out what the vulnerabilities are, start to look at options, and then do the cost benefit and actually start sinking some money into the, into the infrastructure, take action. And uh, we've, we've tried to do this uh, in uh, some of our tools. We've, we've kind of to identify the problem. We've done a lot of sea level rise mapping. I encourage you to check out our, our digital coast. Uh, I sent a, a bunch of links and stuff to, to Shay, maybe you can to, uh, send on to you guys. Um, we have a new beta version that has some of these scenario, local scenarios in there, so I invite you to check out that as a scenario tab. Um, just real quick, this is kind of a cool uh, couple slides I got from the city of Charleston, Laura Cabanis, who's the, the uh, kind of city engineer. She has this great graphic of an old uh, nautical chart or uh, map of Charleston before we filled in a lot of the uh, areas around, uh, especially on the western side of the peninsula. This is the old shoreline, and you can see where the present shoreline is. And well, guess where that we get the flooding? So this was all filled in with uh, kind of unconsolidated uh, dirt and even like animal waste and, and trash, and you know over where the where our stadium is, the the baseball park that was all you know kind of landfill at one point. So that's sinking. And that's where we get uh, some of our some of our worst flooding. And a lot of the coastal cities on the East Coast, we did the same thing. And so where we see the flooding happening are of some of these older uh, inlets and things like that. And the city's actually doing a lot of work now to build these big uh, drainage features that are huge tunnels that are going to put in the water into a repository underneath about 40 feet down and then shoot the water out to the harbor using a series of pump systems and also uh, raising the and armoring the seawalls, raising roads. Um, they've already invested about 235 million into this. So they're, they're really starting to, to take it seriously. Uh, so, um, which is, I think is a good thing. And so uh, they have a sea level rise strategy you guys can check out. And, um, and a lot of cities, I know Miami is, is, is Miami Beach, especially, they're they're doing a lot of work on this too. I think they've invested about 400 million, and and uh, their mayor down there actually his whole uh, platform he ran on was to to fix the flood issues. So, um, I'll leave it at that for questions. I, I could do a demo uh, if you want of our tool, or I could just open it up for questions and, and we can go from there. I can, uh, I guess, if I can, un I'll unshare here. Um, yes, sir. Unshare? If you if you want to do a um, a run of the SLR viewer, okay, um, then, then right. yeah, absolutely. Okay, let me do that. Well, I'll, let me share again then, because um, I was going to suggest that. Sure, it's a, it's a really really neat tool, and it'd be good for you to to sort of explain that 
uh, to where people could understand. I know. I mean, some of us might know what we're looking at, but others may not. Yeah. Okay. Is it sharing again? Yes. Okay. Great. Um, so if you come to Digital Coast, uh, you can just Google Digital Coast. But um, uh, I'll just start at the, the homepage. This is what our homepage looks like. We have access to a lot of different types of data. If you go to data, we have uh, whole data repository, a lot of elevation data, uh, LIDAR data. LIDAR is, is uh, kind of high accuracy elevation data. Uh, we have a ton of tools, training, things like that. Um, if you go into the tools, um, uh, to go back to the homepage, you can see Sea Level Rise Viewer is one of our most popular tools. We have another one called the Hurricane Tracks. You might have seen historical hurricane tracks. It's a pretty neat tool. You can Put in a location and and it um, shows you all the tracks that have passed by there and then you can select and do all this stuff but you go to sea level rise viewer here's our home page uh, you can launch the viewer we have a new beta version so maybe i'll just show you the beta version because it has some of the same function uh, functionality but um, we have a little splash page here kind of uh, gives you the data updates so we are constantly updating this with new data we just updated the whole east coast uh, post sandy area we got affected by Hurricane Sandy, and so we have new data in there. Uh, when you get started, you go in, you're able to just uh, type in your address. I'll do uh, Charleston. Or you can type an address or just a city. If you can actually type, there we go. It zooms in. There's Peninsula, and uh, let's zoom out one more. You can see you got these uh, these little location spots here, so I can I can click on that. It pulls up. This is the, that's the U.S. Customs House. We have these photo locations, so we know the elevation there from the data, and then we can with our slider bar here. We start out at mean high or high water, and we're using something called the the V data model to do that. It's, uh, we model the tide over about 60 or 80 days, and we have a tide surface. Uh, so it does take into account the variability in the tidal surface instead of just interpolating between gauges. And then we can raise the sea level by uh, one foot increments. And you can see on the on the photo, we, we know the elevation there, so we can kind of estimate when water is going to start to impact uh, the structure. So I always like to point this out, because when they built the Customs House back in the early 1900s, they knew what they were doing, because <laughs> that's probably the highest first floor elevation in downtown Charleston. Um, if we'd only built the rest of the structures that way, we would be good. Um, so that it's got that aspect and you can look at these kind of green areas I like to show this too because these are the areas where we start to have the the, the nuisance flooding if you want to call it that so these are our old uh, shoreline kind of you can outline them here especially on the western side of the peninsula so they're green because they're not connected but as soon as you get to a certain threshold they do connect so you these are the areas where it's coming up through if you imagine passing a plane through the through the, the earth, then the water is going to start to pond, show ponding in some areas there. So, and then we can go all the way up to six feet. We're in the current, of, in the process of probably mapping even higher than that, given the new, the NOAA Tech report. And then the um, the NOAA, the new local scenarios. You just basically click on the closest tide gauge. We're already zoomed in Charleston, so I just click on this, and it gives you the ability to either view by scenario or by year. And this is kind of cool. So you can say, all right, well, if you're Charleston and your planning horizon is, um, let's say 2050, well, let's just say 2075, if that's the planning horizon, then based on those uh, scenarios I was telling you about, the lowest intermediate, you can kind of slide this and say, okay, I want to look at, this is what it might look like by 2075. Um, so you can figure out, or you can say, okay, when are we going to hit three feet? All right, under the highest scenario. Well, under the highest scenario, we're going to hit three feet at about. Um, I can't. I can't see what it says because let me hide this. Year 2058. So you can kind of use it both ways. So you match up your inundation with with the years. Same with the scenario. If you want to select the higher immediate scenario, and this kind of shows you that the lower scenarios are all close together initially. Let me just do by year. We're all kind of close together. This shows you those curves, but as the, as you go out, it's kind of a different way to visualize those those curves kind of spreading apart. Um, we also look at um, some of the confidence we have in the mapping that we do. So based on the elevation data, uh, you can see you know there is some uncertainty because we're so flat, especially in, in Charleston and the Low Country. So 
plus or minus, you know, one foot is probably the best we can, even with uh, some of the higher accuracy LIDAR. So we're just kind of showing that. Uh, if you're into uh, marsh and ecosystems, we do we use land cover data. Uh, you can pick different uh, marsh accretion rates, and you can pick different years, and then look at what the state of the marsh might be. So is, are these marshes going to be able to keep up, or are they going to turn into open water? Are they going to run up against a barrier and not be able to migrate, or are they, you know, depending on the accretion rate, which is the amount of sediment that, that's going to go on there. And then um, we have some vulnerability information, but the last one I like to show is, is this one here where you've got these, these red areas. So the weather, we talked about those weather forecast thresholds. Uh, Charleston, the threshold is at the gauge is seven feet mean lower low water, which is about two, between two and three feet mean higher high. And um, we look at how many times we've had those, this area that in red would, would flood 23 times the past five years, when we go out to a meter of sea level rise, you know, we start to have, we basically will flood these areas like every high tide. We have two high tides a day, semi-diurnal tide. So, um, you know, it's just gonna be, unless we can either engineer our way out of this or figure out a way to, to change the land use, uh, we can just identify these areas that are gonna, um, you know, be our first canary in the mines, if you wanna call it that. <laughs> so, and then we link to the same sea level rise trend data. So. Uh, anyway, and, you, and if you're into GIS and doing your own analysis, the beauty of this is it's a great visual tool, but then you can go right in and, and to your state, uh, here's South Carolina, for instance, you can go right and download all of our data. So you can get the DEMs, you can get the, all the uh, GIS data you want to pull into your, to your GIS and do your analysis, which is the, really the point of this. So, and, and we helped out the city of Charleston do a lot of their mapping uh, based on, on some of this data. So, and we do a lot of that kind of technical assistance for a lot of communities as well. So, and uh, that's that's about it for the viewer. Um, and we so have Doug, kind of like Doug, a, Doug, real quick, Doug, I wanted to ask yeah. you if you could uh, take a look at the barrier islands, Isle of Palms, Sullivan's Island, and locales. There's a lot of homes there, a lot of development, and I'm interested to see what sort of flooding we, we are going to be seeing there. Yeah, and if you notice, um, I'm zooming in here to the Isle of Palms because you mentioned it. A lot of the barrier islands have, uh, if you look at the profile of the elevation across the island, in many cases, the higher elevation is on the front beach because we've got this kind of big dune system that's built up. So when you increase water level, it actually floods from the backside. Uh, we do see that with storm surge as well. A lot of times, um, outer banks, for instance, it, it comes up, it comes from the backside and then pokes through and sometimes causes new inlets. But you look at four or five feet, a lot of these bare islands are, are, you know, they'll be hanging on the edge. Now, this is not taking into account the, the geomorphic processes. You know, these beaches will migrate. The, the islands kind of want to roll over as the sea level goes up. You know, that, that's what they're designed to do. Nature wants them to kind of roll over. But if we keep it building seawalls and stuff there, you know, it's going to come up behind, basically. So uh, but this just gives us an idea. And you can, it's kind of neat. Uh, if you start looking at it, Sullivan's Island, if you've been out there, you know, these are the old uh, beach ridges. So you have this kind of dune and swale uh, where it collects like fresh water and stuff like that. You can see how the, the spit has kind of accreted and then eventually, you know, that gets covered. So a lot of times it floods from the back and you can see, you know, the homes in here. Um, the viewer doesn't let you zoom all the way in. We have some, that takes a lot of caching and, 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 uh, and web service, to, but uh, but you can go download all the data and, and, and get that. So um, so I, yeah, I invite you to go in and we, we've got it. Um, it's pretty much for the entire country, uh, except Alaska. Um, we uh, have some data issues in Alaska, plus sea level is actually going up, uh, down in a lot of places in Alaska, but they, um, so you can, if you guys are on from other, other states, you can go kind of check it out. That is fascinating, Doug. Uh, go ahead, Scott, do you have a question? No, this, this is uh, Ricky. Some of these numbers just are incredible to me. I, I lived in Hampton Roads for several years. So as you mentioned, Norfolk, Virginia Beach, communities like that are very uh, vulnerable to this type of sea level rise. And looking at some of these maps and stuff, it makes perfect sense. Some of these zones to me, these are the same areas that deal with storm surge flooding um, on a yearly basis. But just the quite amazing number to me is the flood frequency and how significant that would be. I mean, we go at Sewell's Point from 11 events per year to perhaps 345. I mean, that's yeah. a good portion of the year. 
we could be dealing with flooding. My question goes back to why is it in meters for the sea level rise and the flood frequency while the gauges are in feet? Is that just a, a unit of measurement thing? Well, no, that's a good point. And, and in this new viewer, we actually put in the ability to go from feet to meters. We didn't have that before. Um, you know, we, we still deal with some uh, communities that, I don't know if you've ever seen Stephen Colbert's little deal about uh, the North Carolina uh, he, he said, we, we're never going to be able to understand sea level rise because it's in meters. <laughs> so, um, so that we, um, we have that in both. The only reason we did that in um, a flood frequency initially was um, uh, we actually were talking about in our new version to try to change that or at least put feet in there as well. So, and I actually want to um, communicate this in mean higher high water too, because a lot of people don't understand mean low or low. Sure. Uh, that, that's my other question is, is there one that's better to look at? when it comes to looking at rise, low, low water versus high? Well, the, all they are is, is datums. You can compute whatever you want to at the gauge. Um, it, the reason mean lower low is used for a lot of the navigation, uh, if, well, the reason we have tide gauges to begin with in this country is because of navigation. So we, want, we don't want ships to run aground. So when we do their charting datum, the nautical charts, the, the, the datum there is mean lower low. So you, you look at the, they're the lowest of the low tides. If we're semi-durnal tide in Charleston or on the East Coast, we have two low tides. It looks at the average of the lower of those. So there's likelihood that you're not gonna go any lower than that. Um, it's just sort of become the, the datum that's used um, that co-ops would report in. Now we have the ability that you can change back and forth. So any of the tidal datums that they compute over that epic, which is 19 years um, of the moon cycle, that causes the tides to go up and down over that period, you can use mean higher high. I think mean higher high is better because it's a, a more of a line that we've kind of, it, all it takes is one or two feet above that to start causing some real problems. So um, so that's something that I think Hurricane Center and even co-ops, we're, we're gonna start seeing most of our products try to make things relative to, to mean higher high. Because if you just use the topographic datum like NAVD88, that a lot of our flood maps and stuff from FEMA are in. Um, if you started at zero NAVD88, well, the first three or four feet is just tidal flooding, so it doesn't flood anything. So you, if you start at the high point where the water is right up against the edge of the marsh and starts to spill into, into uh, you know, infrastructure, that's kind of where you want to start. So that's why we're kind of switching our, our focus to that. You brought up Charleston and, and how they're preparing by taking some of these scenarios. Is that what most communities are doing or is there a, a scenario that's more popular with some communities or one that's contested with a lot of communities? Well, it, it's a good question. It's it, it's not the same in every community. I can tell you that. There, I think in North Carolina, there's still the state legislature won't let the agencies even plan beyond like a, a normal uh, uh, extrapolation of some of those curves. Um, and then you have other communities that are, are looking at the sort of the higher higher scenario based on their uh, risk tolerance for critical infrastructure. Um, it does vary. And um, the, the thing is, there's no magic number. Um, what we're trying to do with this these uh, the NOAA tech report that just come out is to give you more of an idea of what's going to happen regionally. I don't think I mentioned in that tech report, it, it takes into account more uh, processes than just vertical land motion and, and global sea level rise. It's also looking at the the density difference that will happen when you melt the ice off of the ice sheets. It's going to change the gravity field, so the water will be displaced differently in in the globe. So it actually will cause sea level to go up higher, faster away from the glaciers. It'll actually be lower next to the glaciers because the water is going to be displaced to other parts of the globe, which is kind of a weird thing to think about, but and then also the oceanographic currents, slowing of the Gulf Stream and, and some of these other uh, features, they're taking that into account to give us more realistic values that communities can start to, to get a handle on. So as we understand the physics more, the science gets better. Like I said, the main thing is these, what these ice sheets are gonna do. That's what's the real, that's the real uh, killer in terms of trying to model. I think they're gonna get better and better at it now that we've put a lot of, I think we're starting to put a lot of resources towards that. Uh, last question for me, and then I'll throw it back to Shay. So let's say we have a, a big hurricane come along or some type of major erosion event. Do these maps get updated as to reflect that? We try to 
update areas that are significantly changed. And a good example of that was after Sandy in the Northeast, there was some uh, Sandy supplemental funding that went to USGS and NOAA, and we collected new LIDAR along those from like New York to Northern South Carolina. And that data all made it back into this mapping. So we did update. We saw some pretty major uh, morphology changes on some of the beaches in New Jersey, for instance. So um, yes, we'll try to do that. But a lot of times it takes a couple years to get that data, you know, collected and processed and, and in. Um, and unfortunately, you know, we can turn around and have another hurricane and change it all. But um, generally, yeah, we, we want to try to get the best data in there. In some cases, though, um, you know, some maps in San Francisco were first done in the 80s with uh, drawn by hand looking at sea level rise and and with even all the technology and high res data we have now they pretty much still show the same thing <laughs> so uh, to some degree you know you look at the map and you go okay this is a problem no, no matter how what the accuracy is so now, Doug my question for you is and you, you talked about mycoast.org uh, that is uh, for South Carolina SED heck is a real integral part of that so state agencies up and down the eastern seaboard the Maryland Virginia South Carolina Georgia uh, they've all sort of jumped on board with some of the coastal resiliency efforts. And, you know, one of the issues that we see is uh, coastal development and stabilization of barrier islands. Talk a little bit about how the coastal uh, resiliency efforts from these state agencies might be helping, or are they getting enough feedback to provide to you in order to help you update whatever data that you have for the coastlines? Yeah, um, the, the state agencies, you know, for instance, um, DHEC, uh, you know, their main um, goal or, or their main mission is to kind of regulate development on the coast. So the idea there is that they monitor erosion rates. Uh, they do they do beach monitoring, including like beach profiles, and they look at the long-term erosion rates and they will establish these erosion setbacks. And so their job is to protect homeowners from building in areas that are highly erosional and, and that will potentially have issues. So they'll say, okay, if you're if your building gets destroyed from storm, you can't build back here. It's, it's too it's too dangerous. Uh, in inlet areas, that they look at the landward most shoreline the past 40 years. So places like Isle of Palms, you know, uh, up by Wild Dunes, that shoreline's gone back and forth so much. Comes on a new bar, gets welded on, and it changes so much. So their job is to kind of regulate, you know, we know these are the bad areas to live. <laughs> Don't build there and try to regulate development. Um, as far as our, you know, NOAA money does pass through to the states for their for their CZM program. We have certain um, consistencies we, we try to hold. You know, as long as they do certain things, uh, they can receive the funding. But we we work pretty closely with them on that, and we try to provide them any data they they can use. For instance, a lot of the lidar data um, they will use to delineate, for instance, the the uh, primary frontal dune, um, and then use that as a baseline for for their erosion mapping and things like that. So. And, uh, and and we try to provide technical assistance too on that, on how to use the data, getting access to the data. And main thing is um, them not having to pay for it. You know, so if we can provide it, collect it, make sure it's in a standard um, that the states can use and be comfortable and, and um, confident in it, then, you know, they're not gonna have to spend their money to do it and duplicate, so. Right, right. So our coastline, I do a lot of wind forecasting for the maritime areas of the coastline. And, you know, the, the nuisance flooding that's occurring many times, especially during perigee and high tides, uh, we see, especially when we have a setup like we have now with northeast winds, uh, northeast wedge setup, that's a driving force. Uh, anything that's a driving force of winds for, you know, 24 to 48 or beyond our period uh, tends to pile water up. Are you able to gauge these type of events? We have, I mean, we have like wind roses and data that provide what months we see the northeast winds more. Uh, do you factor in the, the coastal environment as far as winds go into all of your products? We don't um, in our and what we're doing with our sea level rise viewer. No, there's not a there's it's more of a static uh, planning tool. Um, but you know uh, you're probably aware the Weather Service they do have an extra tropical storm surge model they run. Um, they're developing some better technology there uh, using some more sophisticated models. I know. The extratropical storm surge model they run, um, ET surge, is, is based on kind of a really coarse slosh model, red for the whole East Coast, for instance, and, and they use the GFS to, to drive the winds on that. And so 
at a at any given tide location, you can get a, a graph showing you what the what the peaks are likely to be. You know, so look, for instance, you go to that. I can pull it up if you want right now. But you basically you can you can look in there and say, okay, here's the Charleston. Here's the astronomical tide prediction. They'll show you what the additional amount of of, uh, of water level will be because of the because of the setup. Um, and then for storm surge, um, you know, that's something that the, the Hurricane Center will run. The, uh, they have a probabilistic version of slosh called P-surge, and um, they vary the track and intensity. All these different uh, tracks and intensity runs and do an ensemble, basically, and then give you an exceedance probability. So, and then they take that 10% of the exceedance and map that and show you the depth, potential depths. So they're doing that during Matthew, and um, Turned out to be pretty accurate. Now, 10% exceedance is going to be a kind of an overestimate, um, potentially. But that's the idea is they want, they want to be conservative with, with that, too. So um, so what you're getting at is, is you, to use the, you get into the sort of the forecasting and modeling, um, that, that becomes more of an operational thing where you have to have the, you're bringing in the real-time data winds and all that to, to do it. And uh, that's, that's, tr that's what they try to do. So, and that's where your data comes in handy. <laughs> Couldn't do it without it, right? <laughs> yeah, we're working hard on our mesonet, you know, trying to expand our mesonet to capture these events so we can uh, get a better idea of it. Ricky, did you have one more? Is it, we probably need to sweep it by the panel because we're a little bit after the nine o'clock hour. Yeah, if anyone else on the panel has a question, feel free to jump in now. Otherwise, I'm gonna kind of end with our typical questions. No? Go, go for it. All right, well, in that case, um, Doug, what's a good path for someone who's still, you know, interested in the science, maybe just getting into college to take if they're interested in doing some research on sea level rise or, or something like that in the future. Is it GIS? What's the path they should uh, look into? That's a good question. The, and I'm not sure my path is the most direct. <laughs> um, you do, though, if you're a geology major, you know, you do study a lot of paleo uh, sea level rise kind of thing. So you really do understand sea level rise cycles. And of course, you look at it in the rocks and stuff like that. So, understanding the curves and what drives it. Um, so you do learn that. But um, you know, if you do go into GIS, uh, especially uh, data collection, elevation data, that's that's going to be, I think, a, a growing field. Uh, you know, doing the remote sensing uh, science, like the aerial photography, uh, satellite imagery, and uh, lidar technology is is getting like crazy. Uh, accurate, you know, and it's just more and more data. And um, if anything that goes along with that, you're a database guy and you, you can have, you can learn how to handle all these data sets and process and um, there's a path there. Uh, obviously, you know, meteorology, uh, but it, it, I would say if you want to study on the ocean side, you know, meteorology and oceanography, uh, maybe an oceanography degree is, is maybe a little bit more valuable, but I, it, things like storm surge, uh, total water level is is a is a multidisciplinary thing. It, that's why we haven't done it so well in the past. Um, you got your hydrology guys telling you what the rainfall is going to be. You got your, your surge guys telling you what surge is going to be. You got you know your engineers worried about wave run up, and you have to have all of that to get the the final answer right. And we've always had these silos of, of people. I got I know this answer. I know this answer, and they've never been kind of put together. We're trying to go that way in NOAA now to sort of couple these models together. So having an understanding of the whole system, I think is going to be valuable because that's kind of valuable in the future. That's where we're going with it. So, all right. Um, so get a degree in everything now. <laughs> <laughs> I would say though, uh, you know, there's a lot of degrees out there now that are these sort of uh, like marine science, uh, more general policy. That's fine if you want to do some of the more policy related jobs, but I, I still feel that, you know, really getting a good technical Degree in either meteorology or oceanography, something like that. A hard science is going to is going to going to be more valuable to you if you stick with that type of uh, of uh, career. How much um, do, do you guys employ people outside the disciplines? People who have experience in a field, but maybe don't have a specific degree in that field. We do it all the time. Um, we've got uh, folks here that, in our office that have just ge uh, like uh, geography degrees. Uh, and, and they they know the how to do the GIS, and then we teach them the the, the process stuff, the, the hazards. Uh, then you have content experts that don't know a thing about GIS, and, and they can, um, we end up working on teams. And so um, it's good to have people that know 
different parts and not one person has to know it all, which is, which is a great thing about that. So we, we do do it all the time. We Some of our best um, employees we have now came as interns to us from like the College of Charleston uh, Geology Department. Uh, we've hired several that have been really, I don't know if you guys know Dr. Leslie Sauter, but she's sent us several students, top notch. And um, I think they just come eager and they're willing to learn and they're young and they can Man, they run circles around me on the technology. <laughs> like I, awesome. I can't keep up. So many people get degrees in meteorology, but they may change what they're really interested in as they go, you know, a few years past having their degree or graduating. So it's great to hear that. So, yeah, you're yeah. right, Ricky. You know, we, <laughs> I mean, if you're doing meteorology on the coast, you're almost forced into to a little bit of oceanography and hydrology all together. You have to sort of blend it all and then think about everything as a whole. Yep, definitely do. So. All right, guys. Well, we appreciate you coming on tonight, Doug. Um, I don't know if you have any social media or maybe um, an email address or something. Uh, if, if any of our followers would want to want to get in touch with you or maybe learn a bit more about this, how how could they do that? Um, I don't have. I mean, I have my own personal Facebook page, but I, I would just you can just get in touch with me by email. It's it's pretty easy. It's just Doug D O U G dot Marcy M A R C Y and noah.gov. All right. Well, we appreciate you coming on. Now, I'm not going to answer political questions, I'll tell you that. So, <laughs> We appreciate you coming on tonight, Doug, and a wonderful presentation, and thanks for all the work that you guys do. I know this is a very important project, and we appreciate the work you guys put into it. Well, thank you, and uh, thanks to Shay for uh, inviting me. Absolutely, Doug. Anytime. We'd love to have you back on, too, especially if we get, as we get into the hurricane season, and uh, any other updates that you have, we, we'd love to have you just come on and do the show again. I mean, even this is fascinating information. It's really good. I, I learned a lot from you tonight. So thank you. Great. Yeah, we'll do. All right. Well, we appreciate Doug coming on. And uh, if you're listening on the rebroadcast, uh, the podcast, anything like that, um, there was Doug's email address if you have any uh, questions concerning sea level rise. So uh, next week for uh, Carolina Weather Group, we kind of round, uh, round out the uh, National Weather Podcast Month. Uh, Stormfront Freaks, a fellow uh, weather podcast, will be joining us next Wednesday night at 8 p.m. And it's going to kind of just be a, a, a fun show. No set topic to talk about. Uh, they're going to talk a little bit about their podcast, and we'll talk a little bit about ours and uh, kind of come together and just have a general discussion about weather. So we're looking forward to having uh, the Stormfront Freaks with us uh, next week as we uh, round out the National Weather Podcast Month. So for everyone at the Carolina Weather Group, we hope you have a great rest of the week. Stay safe out there, and we look forward to seeing you next Wednesday night.